If you have your Bibles, open up Psalm 85, and as we look at Psalm 85, um, you should ask yourself if you have ever wanted to be able to push a reset button. Ah, I don't know if you ever played a video game. You know, you go somewhere with Mario, you end up dying, you just can push reset and start over. Have you ever wanted to do that in your life? Got to a point, got to a place, man, I just would like to start fresh, start new. Really, it's what Psalm 85 is all about. Psalm 85 is all about a, a prayer to God that he will push the reset button. He'll restore favor in the land. So let me give you a kind of a historical background. Here's what happened. You have the nation of Israel after the time of Solomon... Solomon's son took over. His name was Rehoboam. Rehoboam was not very wise. One of the things Solomon was uptight about was whether or not uh, um, his son or whoever took over for him would be a wise king. The people came to Rehoboam and they said, Rehoboam, let's give us a break from the taxes. You know, Solomon, he'd been taxing us a lot. We built the temple. We built all these stables. We built all these... Uh, fortresses around the nation. The nation was the largest it had ever been, had the most it had ever had. They had so much gold and silver in the land that the king didn't even bother counting it. So I don't know the last time you had so much money you didn't count it, but that's where they were. They didn't count the money so much. So the people asked for a break from the taxes. Rehoboam, he asked the, the, the wise old guys, and the wise old guys said, yeah, it's probably a pretty good deal. You should give the people a break. Then he asked the young guys, and the young guys said, man, you need to really uh, state your authority here and not let the people think they can push you around. So he went with the young guys, raised the taxes, civil war, split the country. North and south, they're not united again till under Rome, really. So you have the northern kingdom, which is where all the people that are rebellious against God go. Because up north it's hard to worship down in the temple. So they build their own altars to false gods up there. They built the golden calves again. You guys remember the golden calves from, from way back in Egypt? So they build the golden calves. They worship false gods. They never have a king who leads them to follow the Lord or walk in godliness. And they go into captivity with the Assyrians. So we want to, if we look at Daniel, Daniel laid out for us, the concept, really, Scripture tells us about seven great and powerful world kingdoms. Um, we begin with, with Egypt. Assyria is about fourth on the list, I'm going to say. Assyria, Greece, Rome. Rome being seven, so six, five, maybe it's five. But it, nonetheless, Assyria is a world power. Rules the world for a period of time. So they take the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom, God through his prophets tells the southern kingdom, pay attention to the north. Learn the lesson from your sister. Learn the lesson from your sister. In fact, the Bible calls it, learn the lesson from your sister Sodom, who, who didn't walk in obedience and, and has followed in idolatry and has gone into captivity. So the southern kingdom, that's where the people went that really wanted to follow the Lord and wanted to follow his directives but you know how it is they they do good they don't do good they do good they don't they fall they stumble they get up so 
150 years later, Assyria is conquered by the Babylonians, and the Babylonians come down and they take the southern kingdom. That's remember, I've told you guys before about Jeremiah 29:11. Everybody's or many people's favorite verse, right on the on the refrigerator. I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of good and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's spoken to the people as they're on their way to the Babylonian captivity. So they've lost everything. That's the context of that verse. You've lost it all, but I want you to know I have good plans for you. My, my, my desire is not to destroy you, but to make you better. Go into Babylon, live lives. Seventy years later, you'll come back out. Seventy years later, they come out. They go back to the land. The land's desolate. The walls are broken down. The, the, the buildings, the temple, everything's destroyed. So they go back and they slowly begin to rebuild. Slowly they rebuild year by year. Finally they, they get things built up. Worship begins again. The temple is back, but, but it's, a, 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 uh, uh, it, it's miserable compared to what Solomon's was. In fact, the Bible says the old men who were children at the time of Solomon's temple, weep when they see the temple that they built. On one hand, happy the temple's back. On another hand, sorrowful for how far they had fallen. That's where this psalm comes out of. So you have the, the idea of all the regret of what could have been mixed in with the desire to say, God, will you bring us back to the glory days, the good old days? You know, the good old days are always a little better than they ever really were. I don't know. For me, anyways. The, the glory days are always a, a little bit exaggerated. But that's the call. Look what he says in Psalm 85. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. So he's saying, you, you're, you've led us back. The people have come back into the land. And you have brought back the captivity of Jacob. Here's an interesting side note. Whenever God refers to the nation as the nation of Jacob, it's usually in a time of disobedience. Right? Remember Jacob, deceiver, liar, what happened when he was walking with the Lord? What, what did God change his name to? Israel, right? Governed by God or prince of God. So, so when it refers to Jacob, it's usually talking about a time of disobedience. So you've restored Jacob. You brought the deceiver. You know, the people you've given. You've opened up the land again. We're back. You know, but things aren't the same. Things aren't what they were. They're definitely counting their money now, right? They're not to a point where they're like, oh, we got so much gold and silver, we don't, we don't need to count it. We don't need to pay attention to it. No, that's all, all those days are gone. Now they're poor. They're, 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 they're scraping out a living in the, in the dust and the dirt. So he says... In verse 2, he says, You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. So there's been the forgiveness of sin. The, the fulfillment of God's requirements, 70 years, the land was going to get rest. The people, the people wouldn't give the land rest. The Bible tells us that God made a deal with the people, right? Every work six days and take the seventh day off. That was a covenant that he made with Israel. Okay? Work six days, seventh day off. On the sixth day, I'll give you double. But you know, people who want to walk in the covenant of, uh, of the Sabbath, they don't always want to follow all of the Sabbath. They just pick and choose what they like. Because there was also a Sabbath year. Which meant you worked six years. And the seventh year, 
the land got rest. You didn't plant. You didn't reap. You just set it there. for, And God said, I'll give you double on year six. So then you don't have to do it year seven. You can take the seventh year off. And for 490 years, the people never did it. God gave them double, and they worked the seventh year. God gave them double, they worked the seventh year. You know how it works, right? Well, the first time you did it, you say, well, I did it, nothing happened. And we're getting ahead. So we did it again, and we did it again. At the end of 490 years, God said, you owe me 70 years of rest. So I'm going to send you to Babylon, and nobody's going to work the land for 70 years. So when they come back, 70 years of rest on the land was a lot of work. There's a lot of things that were necessary. But God forgave. He forgave their sin. They fulfilled the requirement. He says, you have covered all the sin, and you have taken away all your wrath. So God's wrath, keep in mind, God's wrath. I don't want you to see God's wrath as this explosion of anger like our wrath. God's wrath, the Greek word for God's wrath is the word orge. It's predisposed judgment. God's wrath is like this. If God said, thou shalt not steal, and you steal, there was a judgment from God required for your theft. That was called God's wrath. It's his judgment. God's not mad. He just said, if you do this, what's going to cost you? If you do this, this is going to happen. So, he says, your wrath has been fulfilled. God fulfilled it because the people went into captivity and that was finished. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. So look at verse 4. So restore us, O God, of our salvation. Just hear the cry of the people. Give us back all the stuff we lost. Restore us to our former glory. Let us be a great nation. But you guys, you know that none of those things happen, right? The people came back to the land. They built the temple. When we come to the time of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes and realizes there's no wall around the city. He wants to rebuild the city. So he goes to a guy named Artaxerxes. And he says to Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, can I go rebuild the city? And on March 14th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes said, yeah, go. You know why we know that date? Because Daniel told us from that point, 69 weeks of years, the Messiah would come back. Messiah would come into the land. 483 years later, Messiah would come. April 6th. 32, 30, to people still argue, 29, 30, 31, 32. In that frame, Jesus comes walking into Jerusalem in that time period. March 14th, 445 B.C. It took the people 49 years to build the wall and to reestablish the, the city of Jerusalem. And they wanted it to be great. But it was never great again. They wanted to rule it themselves, but a king of David never sat on the throne from the fall into Babylon until Jesus Christ was, was 
crowned king. If you look at uh, Daniel, I want to say chapter 7, there's a vision in Daniel chapter 7 which has the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days and sitting on His throne and the Ancient of Days saying to Him, Sit here till I make your enemies your footstool. That was the ascension of Jesus Christ. When He ascended to the Father, that's when He took the throne. One day He'll take the throne on earth. But remember what Jesus said? How much authority had been given to Him? All authority where? In heaven and earth, right? So go. So he sat, and God said, I'm going to make all your enemies your footstool. So he becomes the, he sits on the throne, not the throne of David. He's not on the throne of David, earthly throne. But he sits on God's throne, awaiting that time when all his enemies will be put under his footstool. We see the fulfillment of that in Revelation chapter 19. So, so there's no king there are vassals. You guys know what a vassal is? A vassal is like a lesser king. A vassal is a king that's put on a throne by another country that watches over them. So they have vassal kings. They're, they're under uh, um, the Medo-Persian Empire at the time of the release. Babylon conquers them, but the Medo-Persian Empire takes over. So the Medo-Persian Empire, that's the empire of Artaxerxes. The Medo-Persian Empire gets conquered by Greece. And that's during, you guys have heard of Antiochus Epiphanes? So that's during the battle. Remember, Daniel, we're going to talk about all this stuff on Sunday. But Daniel, um, Daniel chapter 10 talks about the fact that, that Alexander the Great, his kingdom is going to be divided into four parts. North, south, east, west. Two of those parts are going to spend a lot of time fighting over and around the area of Jerusalem, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. From there comes Antiochus Epiphanes, the first example of Antichrist. That's why he's written about in the book of Daniel. He sacrifices a pig on the, on the Holy of Holies and desecrates the temple. And so the Maccabean revolt takes place and the Maccabees... They take back what was lost to Antiochus. And while they're battling and fighting and trying to do battle with, with the Grecian Empire, they reach out for help from a, a little-known nation at the time, just a young upstart named Rome. So they invite Rome to come help them. So at the time of Jesus Christ, who was running Israel then? Rome, right? So you had Babylon, Medo-Persians, from the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, from the Greeks, Rome, and after Rome, after 70 AD, who ran it? Well, nobody, because they weren't there. Right? So this is a cry, Lord, restore us, make us what we were before. But it's not going to happen. Why isn't it going to happen? Because Ezekiel had seen a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 10 and Ezekiel chapter 11. Ezekiel had told the people, the glory has departed. What did he mean? The glory has departed. The presence of God has left. The blessing has left the nation. He went out the temple. He went out the door. He went out the eastern gate. He went up on the Mount of Olives and over the other side. It's gone. Glory has departed. Until... April 6, 32 A.D., 
when Jesus Christ came on that same route. He came from Bethany over the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, into the Eastern Gate, up to the place of the temple. That's the next time the glory of God entered into the nation of Israel. He overturned the table, he cleansed the house and said, my father's house or my house shall be a house of prayer, right? Cleansed the temple, was questioned for four days, rejected by the priests, thrown out and crucified a few days later. When he left the temple prior to his arrest, when he left the temple prior to Passover, he said, see, your house is left to you desolate. It's empty. And then as he walked out, what did he tell the disciples? Not one stone will be left on another. All this is going to be torn down. So when we look at Psalm 85 and the people saying, Restore us, restore us, you know, make us a great nation again. Cause your anger toward us to cease. It has really not so much to do with God's anger, but more to do with the people's disobedience. You're going to see it in a minute. They say in verse 5, will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Won't you revive us? See, their, their feeling is, that if, if only God would revive us, then everything would be okay. And God's feeling is, if only you would love me, you would be revived. You just want the good things of God. And you don't want to love the Lord your God with all your heart. You love God's good things. You love the days of old with the gold and the silver. But do you love the Lord your God? He says in verse 7, show us your mercy. The word for mercy there. Some of your Bibles may say, show us your loving kindness. Show us your loving... It's the word chesed. The Hebrew word that is the closest equivalent to the word agape. Show us your covenantal love, your everlasting love, your, your mercy. Give us mercy and grant us your salvation. Really, that's what the nation needed. God's mercy. And God's mercy, because of God's mercy, they were back. Because of God's mercy, they had a temple. Because of God's mercy, they built the wall. Because of God's mercy, they had a, a, a land. And because of God's mercy, there's a plan for Israel. Still. Romans chapter 11 lays that out. But verse 8, I love. Verse 8 says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak. So he's asking for a restore. You know, God, I want to hit the reset button. I want to go back to when we had all that stuff. And then as he, he makes that request, it's okay to make the request. He makes the request and then he sits down and says, I will hear what God will speak. I want to listen to him. What God wants to do. What God, how God's going to move in our midst. <clears throat> For he will speak peace. You see that word peace? That's the word shalom. The word shalom does not just mean peace like, you know, I'm, I'm at peace and everything's good. The word peace means wholeness completeness, whatever's lacking and missing out of a life. Shalom was the fulfillment of that. Which ultimately is what God wants to bring into anyone's life, right? Wholeness, completeness, to be fulfilled in our relationship with Him. So, so He will speak wholeness to His people and to His saints. And then look at the next phrase. But let them not turn back to, what's the word? Folly. 
Let them not turn back to folly. What was the folly? What was the people's folly? They fell into idolatry. Well, what is another word for idolatry? They were unfaithful spouses to God. Another word for idolatry is just people were cheating on God. God said, I love you with all my heart. I want you to love me with all your heart. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. And the people said, yeah, 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 it's you and me till the wheels fall off. But every time, that's why the Bible described idolatry as them going out and being unfaithful under every green tree. God's saying, you're just running around and cheating on me with whoever. People who, who, who can offer you nothing. Who will give you nothing. Your unfaithfulness. And so that unfaithfulness was what was, was going on. So he said, don't let them, let the people not go back to their folly. Let them not go back to their folly. And they didn't. They never went back to idolatry again. The folly from this point forward was legalism. Pretending to be holy on the outside when inside you're really full of dead men's bones. Right? Looking good on the outside, but the inside was a mess. They still need a touch from God. So look at verse 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. That's the, part, that's the problem. What's missing in the land's got the temple. What's missing in the land? Got a wall. What's missing in the land? We got a city. What don't they have? The glory. Until April 6, 32 AD. When the glory walks back in. So they say, Lord, surely you will draw near to those who fear you. For the glory, that the glory may dwell in our land. We want the Shekinah, the Shekinah. We want that glory back in the land. And then look at verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Truth shall spring out of the earth. And righteousness shall look down from heaven. Now what do you think these things is? He's asking God to, to lift them back up to the glory that they had once upon a time. To restore the nation. He says, I'm going to listen to you, God, because, because I know that you're, you make us whole. You're going to make us complete. And then all of a sudden, out of his heart springs this concept. Mercy and truth have met together. Where did the love, mercy, the hesed, the love of God, and the truth of God, where did the love of God and the truth of God meet? What do you think? In Jesus. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. The idea is these four incredible attributes of Almighty God are, are wrapped up in one person. In one being. And then look what he says. Look what he says. Truth will spring out of the earth. What did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Ultimate authority. Absolute truth. Wrapped up in Jesus Christ. When he's standing before Pilate. Pilate. Makes the statement, right? Quiet est veritas. And he walks away. You know what the statement was? What is truth? While he was standing before truth incarnate. Truth that had sprung up from the earth. And what had come down from heaven? Righteousness shall look down from heaven. And what will happen? Look at verse 12. The Lord, that's Yahweh, 
Capital L-O-R-D. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him. Righteousness will go before him. And look at the last part. And shall make his footsteps our pathway. The question is, he's saying, look, this is going to happen. Truth is going to come. All these attributes of God are going to be wrapped up in Messiah. He's going to be here on the earth. Truth on the earth. Righteousness looking down from heaven. And he's going to show us the way to walk. The question that's not asked is, will you follow? Will you follow? He'll show us the path. That's the, la- that's the last thing he says. He's, gonna, he's going to make his footsteps our pathway. There it is. There's where he walked. Are you coming? Are you coming? That's where the psalm drops off. Then we come to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 the Psalm of David. The only Psalm of David in book 3 out of the 5 books of the Psalms. It's the only Psalm of David in this section, Psalm 86. Bow down your ear, O Lord, and hear me, for I am poor and needy. God, I, I need you to hear my prayer. I'm crying out to you. He's using the covenantal name of God. So not a generic name. He's using God's personal name. Lord, hear me, for I am poor and needy. What's he asked for? Preserve my life. For I am holy, you are my God, save your servant who trusts in you. So when he says this, when he lays out this claim, look, uh, preserve my life for I am holy. What's he saying? What does holy mean? The word holy means I'm set apart. One of the things that marked David, that the Bible says made him different from everybody else was he had what? A heart after God, right? The Bible has another way of saying that. It says he had an undivided heart. His heart was holy toward the Lord. Didn't mean he was perfect. Obviously we know that, right? David wasn't perfect. But his heart, his desire, the desire of his heart was God. We see that exampled in his life. And that's what he's saying. Preserve my life. I am set apart. I'm wholly yours. You are my God, so save your servant who trusts in you. So he's, you're my God, I'm following you, I, 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 I'm just calling on your name because I need you. What's he calling on the basis of? Verse 3, be merciful to me, O Lord. That's like, O King. So he said, you're my God, so that speaks of obedience, right? And, and, and love, you are my King, I'm going to do... What what you ask me to do, for I cry to you all day long. Rejoice the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call on you. So David calls on the Lord. He has a prayer. He's asking for God to deliver him through a difficult situation. People want to kill him. And so as he calls on him, why, what is the thing he's laying out before the God based on your mercy, based on your love, based on your goodness, God, based on who you are, not on him. He's not saying, Lord, do this for me because, because I do a lot for you or, or, you know, I'm the king or, or, you know, I've been good or whatever. It's not on those basis. He just comes to the... To, to the Lord on the basis of His goodness and mercy and His love for Him. So that's the basis upon which He goes to the Lord. That's the same basis that we should go to God. Not on the basis that we're too bad or that we're too good. 
We go to the Lord on the basis of His mercy. He is good, ready to forgive, abundant in mercy to everyone who calls on His name. In verse 6, He says it again, Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer, and attend to the voice of my supplication. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you, for you will answer me. So He's saying, look, I'm having it. It's hard. I'm having a hard time. I'm dealing with some difficulties. In verse 8, Among the gods... There is none like you, O Lord. Oh, we got another one of those God's things. What's that all about? Remember I told you that there is a name for God. God's name is not God. God is a term we give Him. God's name is Yahweh. There is no God like Yahweh. There is only one God. Isaiah 43.10 He's the only God on all the earth. But Elohim can also be used. Remember we talked about before. Kings... Judges, but it's also a term used for the angels. The, the term used for the angels more often is Bene Elohim. Bene Elohim, the sons of God, Job. And the sons of God came before the Lord, and God asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Remember the phrase? Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God and the daughters of, of Cain. The sons of God and the daughters of Cain. It's Bene Elohim. And the Septuagint, which is the first translation of the Bible in 270 B.C., what did the Septuagint call that? The angels. Same thing here. What's he saying? He's saying, over all the heavenly beings, all the spiritual beings that are out there, the, the angels, there is none like the Lord. There is none like you, O Master. That's what that, O Lord, that's not his proper name. So he says, of all the angels, all the spiritual beings, God, you are above them all. Nor are there any works like your works. What works are those? The works of creation. The works that God points to, that, that he is the maker of how many things? All things, right? So he made it all. It's all what he has done. So there is no work like your work. All the nations whom you have made. All the goyim. All the goyim. It's also a term used in Hebrew for the Gentile. All the peoples. All the kinds of peoples that there are. You've made them all. They shall come and worship before you, O Lord. Again that phrase, O Lord. Adonai, master or king. And shall glorify your name. For you are great. And you do wondrous things. That phrase, wondrous things, are always, is always used of God's salvific power. God's ability to save. So you do wondrous things. So what is he saying? All the nations, every person on earth, one day is going to come before you and worship. How does the New Testament say it? One day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the, the idea of the kingship, the reigning of Jesus Christ, David is saying, every knee is going to bow. There's nobody like you. No, no spiritual being like you. There's no human being like you. There's no king like you. Look at the last phrase of chapter 10. For you alone are God. You are it. So look at what David's request. Now, he's asked him to spare him. 
He's asked him to save his life. He's asked him to help him in a troubled time. And, and then what he, what he does is David often lays out his request, and then he turns his eyes to the Lord. And when he sees the Lord and the majesty of God and the bigness of God and all the stuff going on of God, then he begins to turn his eyes back. And when he turns his eyes back, look what he says in 11. Teach me your way, O Lord. Now, that's Yahweh. Personal name of God. Teach me your way, O Yahweh. And what will I do? I will walk in your truth. Teach me your way. I will walk in your truth. And then what does he pray? Unite my heart to fear your name. See, one of the things that made David a man after God's own heart is the willingness to ask God to take away his divided heart and make it united. Unite my heart to fear your name. To fear you. To fear God. To fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because when you revere fear, when your primary concern is how something looks to God, then you're going to honor Him. You're going to walk with Him. You're going to love Him. You're going to give Him the, the respect that He is due. So he says, unite my heart. I want my heart united, not divided. I don't want to love this and love that and love the other thing. I want my heart united on you, the, on the fear of the Lord. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with how much of my heart? What's he say? All my heart. All my heart. I'm going to give you all my heart, and I will glorify your name for how long? Forevermore. For great is your mercy. Chesed. Great is your covenantal love. Great is your mercy. Great is your agape. Great is the, the love that you have toward me. And you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Sheol's the grave. So David says, you saved me from the grave. How is it that God saved him from the grave? Well, when the scripture lays out for us, New Testament, Jesus Christ paid for our sin. What did he say? To be absent from the body is what? Present from the Lord. So, so we don't sit in the grave. We are corrupt. We're not lost. We belong to him. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and life in John chapter 11, right? Lazarus is dead. Mary and Martha both come to Jesus and say, Lord, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Where were you when we needed you? Jesus said... I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live. Yet shall he live. Nobody dies in Christ. David seeing that God has saved him from the grave. That he is among the righteous to hold on to the promise of the resurrection of the dead. He's, he's been saved. Oh God, the proud have risen against me, and a mob of violent men have sought my life, and have not set you before them. But, in contrast to these guys, you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in mercy and in truth. Turn to me and have mercy on me. What is it that David, when he prays to God, comes to God on the basis of? God's mercy. God's grace. God's love. God's goodness. That's how we are to go to the Lord. Same way that David did. The same attitude that David had. So turn to me and have mercy on me. Give me your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. 
Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. Because you, Lord, covenantal name of God, Yahweh, because you, Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. Show me a sign. Show me, show me your goodness that they will see it and know that, that you're with me. So David, calling on the Lord, looking for deliverance from God based on his goodness and on his mercy. Then we come to Psalm 87. It's a short one. A psalm of the songs of the sons of Korah. It says, His foundation is the holy mountains. Now, when the Bible talks about the holy mountains or the holy city, and that's this whole psalm is about the city, what is the holy city of God? What is Zion? Zion's Jerusalem. What, what's God's city? Jerusalem. What does Jerusalem mean? City of peace. City of peace. It's God's city. I don't know why. God picked it. He said, that's my city. That's my place. That's why everybody fights over it. They'll fight over it forever until Jesus comes back, puts his throne there. And the fighting will stop. Until then, they'll fight over that city. Well, look what he's going to talk about, this city. It says, the Lord loves the gates of Zion, the gates of Jerusalem, more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Now, when, remember I told you, when he talks about Jacob, oftentimes he's pointing to disobedient Israel, right? More than all the land of Israel, all the other tribes, all the other cities, everywhere else, God loves Zion. God loves Jerusalem. God loves that place. That place is his place. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. Selah. Glorious things are spoken of of you. Now look at verse 4. So I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to those who know me. Behold, O Philistia and Tyre and Ethiopia, though this one was born here. So he goes to all these people. It's kind of a cool section because he's going he's to tie all the peoples together and tell them Jerusalem's their home. But what he says, he goes to all the traditional enemies of Israel. All the traditional enemies. He goes to, to Rahab, not Rahab the harlot, Rahab which looks to, uh, to Babylon. He looks to uh, um, um, Rahab, I'm sorry, Rahab Assyria and Babylon to those who know me, Philistia a little closer, Tyre another enemy, Ethiopia which is some of the outskirts enemies Israel had. <clears throat> this one was born there. He's, he's pointing to like his own people, look. This is my city. These are my people. And of Zion it will be said. This one and that one were born in her. What is it? God's talking about the work that he's going to do for the new Jerusalem. What is special about the new Jerusalem? Who lives there? Believers. Um, what, what are they made of? What people group? Well, they're not Jew or Gentile. Male or female. Barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. They are all one in who? In Jesus Christ. All one in Christ. So that's the home of the believer. So that's what he's saying. In Zion, it will be said. It's future tense, right? It's going to be said, this one, the ones who live in Jerusalem, and that one, the enemies of God, they're all born in her. They're, they all belong to that city. And the Most High, El Elyon himself, will establish her. 
God Himself, Almighty God, is going to... The Bible tells in Revelation chapter 21 that the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven from God. The new Jerusalem, the city of God, the place that, that, that the, the psalmist is looking to in a futuristic tense. And it says, the Lord will record, Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord will record when He registers the people. Where is He going to record them? What's the book called? The Book of Life. If your name's written in the Book of Life, you get into the New Jerusalem. If it's not, you don't. So He will register the peoples. That's all the peoples. And say, this one was born there. Both the singers and the players on instruments say, All my springs, all that water, everything, the living water, it's in you. Jesus said, If anyone thirsts, let him come unto me. And I will give him drink, and out of him will flow the springs, the river of life. So, the promise of the new Jerusalem brought through in Psalm 87. That uh, home, hopefully, that we're all homesick for. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.